Heavenly Father, thank you for your gracious provision towards us here at PBCC. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, we never have been in a place where we've been worried about the lights being turned off or uh, just not being able to pay, pay people. Lord, you've been, you've been so faithful. And so we thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for the generosity that you've placed in the hearts of the folks here to support what we do here in Cupertino, but also to support things that are going on around the world. And Father, we just pray for wisdom going forward for ourselves personally, Lord, these times do feel like they're uncertain. But as a church, we don't know what things look like as well. And so, Father, we pray for wisdom as we move forward. And we thank you for your faithfulness in the past. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, John will be coming up in a few moments to share from us from Jeremiah. And he asked to have the scripture reading read from 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 12 through 17. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death, to death, to death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our, in our mortal flesh. So, God, so death is at work in us, but life in you. John, come up and share with us from Jeremiah. <laughs> Thanks. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> thank, thank you. It's so nice to see so many lovely people and, and uh, blessed to be part of the reunion tour of uh, former 20-something people. How was it that I got to be here the, of the day of the fiscal report? I don't know how that <laughs> lined up. <clears throat> but 2017, you know, you saw everything change. That's when I retired. So I can take credit for those surplus years, those fat cows. <laughs> Well, one of the most enriching, rewarding studies that I did when I was here uh, during my 34 years was uh, my studies in the book of Jeremiah. I think I preached on this book 26 times uh, during the course of a few years. And during that time, Jeremiah became a friend. It's because he's so vulnerable. He is so real. He is so human. Um, Jeremiah was not a bullfrog, if you're old enough to remember the song uh, from Three Dog Night. Rather, he was a prophet in Israel, one of the big three, one of the Mount Rushmore of the prophets. Um, and uh, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are often called the manic, uh, depressive, and psychotic articulations of God. This morning, I'm not gonna to try to cover all of Jeremiah. I wanna hit on two themes that resound in this book. One on Jeremiah personally, and then on the message that he repeatedly gave over 40 years. Now the political world in this day was pretty complex. It seems things never change. There were two superpowers, Egypt to the south, Assyria to the north. Palestine was long past his prime at this time. 
And uh, in fact, the uh, northern kingdom, um, uh, Israel, had been infiltrated and dispersed some 100 years before Jeremiah showed up on the scenes. Uh, the only reason Judah survived was because of the faith of Hezekiah and Isaiah. Then during the ministry of Jeremiah, uh, Babylon uh, began its ascent to become the next superpower, next world power. Judah had been through its darkest time under evil king Manasseh. Uh, we read in Kings that uh, Manasseh filled Jerusalem from one end to another with innocent blood. Uh, he reverted to the worship of Canaanite and Assyrian deities, the black arts of magic, and even human sacrifice. And this is where the story of Jeremiah begins. The words of Jeremiah to the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anatoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. And the word of the Lord came also to Jeremiah during the reign of uh, Josiah's two sons, uh, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. A little timeline. In the year 640, Josiah became king of Judah at the age of eight. In 628, when he was 20, he sought the Lord and began to purge the country of idolatry. Jeremiah began his ministry one year later. And so we have this picture of Josiah and Jeremiah, these two young men who are seeking to reform the land of God's people. In 622, Josiah found the Mosaic law in the temple. It had been lost for years and had not been seen or read. Assyria was too distracted with her enemies, the Babylonians and the Medes, to control Josiah's reform. In 609, Josiah was killed at a battle of Megiddo trying to stop the Egyptians, and he was succeeded by Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, his sons. Zedekiah ruled until the fall of Jerusalem in 587 and the beginning of the Babylonian exile. My whole point is that during this time, Jeremiah ministered for 40 plus years, so leading right up until the Babylonian exile. Now first I wanna talk about Jeremiah the prophet. We can learn a lot from Jeremiah's life because we know more about him than any of the other prophets. Chapter one begins with God's call on this teenage to be prophet. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now these are very pregnant verses, very filled with great deal of meaning for Jeremiah and for us. First, before I formed you, Jeremiah, I knew you. Formed is the word to craft or design, a word given to the potter in chapter 18, a word that David uses in Psalm 139. God designed and crafted Jeremiah in the belly of his mother, but even before that, he knew him. He had intimate knowledge of every cell in his body. Um, he was special. 
He was precious. The second word that God gives to Jeremiah is, before you came out of the womb, I consecrated you, meaning I made you holy. I set you apart. I sanctify you. Before Jeremiah breathed one breath on his own, he was chosen for something special. And the third thing that God says to Jeremiah is, I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. The word appoint means to give. Jeremiah was set apart in order to give his life for others, in the service of others, for God's work in the world. And that's the generous nature of God. God designed and set apart Jeremiah for a special mission. Now Jeremiah is taken back by this word of the Lord because he's just a youth, he's a teenager. But God tells Jeremiah, don't worry about being a youth. You shall go to whom I send you and speak what I command you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you to deliver you. God then touches Jeremiah's mouth and tells him, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. God's mission for Jeremiah, for this young man, if you can believe it, was to destroy and tear down what was, the places of false worship, the idolatrous ways of Judah and the surrounding nations. And then Jeremiah was tasked to also replant and to rebuild a people pleasing to God. Jeremiah wasn't going to actually do this. He was going to proclaim what God was going to do. Jeremiah was to give hope for what God would do in the future. Now, this assignment is extremely difficult for Jeremiah. But again, God confirms to Jeremiah that he will be with him to accomplish what he calls him to do. He will be a fortified city, an iron pillar, bronze walls, and nothing will be able to prevail against him. What a start for this young Jeremiah. Being called in such a special way by God and armed with very strength of God. Now at this point, you might think that Jeremiah was going to have an illustrious career and ministry. He was going to uh, plant a church in Judah called Judah Bible Church. Uh, it would be a multi-site church with uh, campuses all over Judah. He would write 50 books. He would be in demand as a retreat speaker. He was going to be famous. Well, nothing could be farther from reality. Jeremiah would be opposed, rejected, persecuted, mistreated, mishandled by all the leaders of Judah, officials and priests together. He would be placed into stockades, thrown into a hole in the ground, have his life threatened, his writings would be burned. And even though he and Josiah led a reform, it would only be skin deep. Jeremiah will endure 40 years of prophetic ministry with very little to show for it and end up going to Egypt when Judah is led away to exile in Babylon. Jeremiah's life is filled with pain. 
struggles, difficulties, depression, fear, and hopelessness. Over and over, Jeremiah throws out his complaints to God about his job assignment and in so doing expresses his broken and vulnerable humanity. And one of the verses that has that I've remembered for now for many years is in chapter 15. Why is my pain unceasing? Why is my pain perpetual? My wound incurable, refusing to be healed. Will you be to me like a deceitful brook? Like waters that fail? Um, we had a lament service when we studied this passage uh, back in 2020 or 2021 or 2022 or uh, 20, 2002 about there. Uh, lament is part of Christian wor worship and man, Jeremiah knew how to lament. Uh, he is often called the weeping prophet. He says, oh God, you've deceived me and I was deceived. You know, why'd you do this? Why'd you, you gave me this great job assignment, but you deceived, you tricked me into this. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction, for the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. People hate me and disdain me, God. You know, you wonder, I know that Jesus found his home in Isaiah and talked about repeated texts from Isaiah a lot. But I wonder if, Jer if Jesus reflected on Jeremiah's words as well. I'm, I'm a laughing stock. I'm a derision all day long. And then like Job, Jeremiah even curses the day that he was born. Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed is the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Why did I come out of the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Have you ever said these words? Why in the world was I born? Why has my life been so painful? Why does everybody laugh at me and treat me poorly? I'm just trying to live my life and do God's work and follow Jesus. Why is this happening? Jeremiah and God have this running dialogue. Maybe you do too. You know, you talk to God. You, you just have a conversation with God. Jeremiah complains to God, but God does not let Jeremiah off the hook. And at one point, Jeremiah asks God why the wicked prosper and why God does not judge them. And God's response is classic. If you've raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Jeremiah, if you're having a hard time now, just wait till the tough really gets, the, the, the going gets really tough. When you have to run with horses, when you have to, 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 to make your way through the thickets of the Jordan, Jeremiah, keep your eyes on me and trust me. Probably not what Jeremiah wanted to hear. But even though there were times when Jeremiah wanted to give up and run away, he remained faithful to his calling for 40 years. 
He could not, not do what God had given him to do. And we see this when he says, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary from holding it in and I cannot. Jeremiah has to do what God has called him to do. He cannot run away. Now, let me suggest that Jeremiah's life has a great deal of meaning for us, beginning what God said to Jeremiah. And I hope you take these words to heart. We are foreknown. We're crafted. And we're set apart, each and every one of you. You're the unique creation of God. We're not an accident. We're a divine appointment, a divine choice. And we're set apart to live holy lives. And this is what the New Testament affirms for us who are in Christ. What Paul says in Colossians, you're holy, um, chosen, and beloved. You're uniquely special. We're not what we have, we're not what we do, we're not what people think about us. We are what God thinks about us. And this is what God thinks about us. And then let me suggest that like Jeremiah, each and every one of us have a calling and a purpose for our life. We're given to others for the work of God. We're not ourselves by ourselves. We're not designed to, to live in a tiny bubble looking inward and, and trying to grab and get for our pleasurable, happy existence. Now this calling is not a title or even a job career. It's something much be bigger that transcends every aspect of your life. It may not be as dramatic as Jeremiah, but it's just as meaningful. It's maybe not what you want to do, it's what God wants to do through you for the sake of others. It's something you cannot not do. And perhaps it's really good to describe your calling with a metaphor, like gardener, or a shepherd, or a pilot, or um, an encourager, a comforter, See what I'm saying? If your calling is to be an encourager to other people, you do that at work, you do that at home, you do that in your neighborhood. That's your calling that God has given you. For example, I was a pastor here at PBCC for 34 years. I had a title. I was pastor. Well, when I retired at the end of the 2017 and you all began to get a surplus here at the church, <laughs> Um, I didn't have that title. And I go, what, what's my purpose now? What's my calling? What am I going to do? And what I discovered in the last five years is that I'm still a pastor. That's who I am at my core. I naturally gravitate towards people to shepherd and care for them. It may look a little bit different, but, but that's how I operate. I don't need a title to be a pastor. 
when Jesus had a last meal with his disciples, he took bread, he, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. And let me suggest to you that Jesus does the same thing with us. He takes us. He blesses us because we are so special to him. And then he breaks us. He breaks us open. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that get broke open so people can see what's on the inside. And then he gives the bread. He gives us to the world. Let me suggest that like Jeremiah, fulfilling your calling might be filled with resistance, opposition, setbacks, confusion, pain, and even depression. Some of the most remarkable people I, I know or have read about um, have had serious bouts of depression. But God has used these people in amazing ways. Life is hard. Church is beyond complicated and relationships are difficult. Trying to follow Jesus is not easy. Just because God calls us and sets, apart, sets us apart does not mean that the journey will be a walk in the park. And finally, let me suggest that fulfilling our calling is not about results or success as the world would measure those things, but about faithfulness, covenant loyalty to our covenant God. And this flies in the face of our Western culture and our Western evangelical church. Churches take pride in numbers and all the exterior trappings of worldly success. Large churches are not necessarily bad, but neither are small churches. In my work now, I hear so many stories about church problems, church hurt, leaders who are under tremendous pressures to produce, so much so that they have physical symptoms in their body. The mark of a church is not numbers, but it's health, love, and spirit. See, Jeremiah slugged away for 40 years with little results. Would we say that his life was a failure? How about missionaries who spend Years and years overseas sharing the gospel or planting a church with very little to show for it, would we say that their lives were a waste? Just because our, our life is hard and without measurable success does, does not mean that we miss God's will or misunderstood our calling. The true measure of success is to be faithful where you're planted, faithful to the calling God has placed on your life. All the results are up to him. Perhaps you're here this morning struggling in your job situation, in your marriage, in your church relationships, the leadership roles that you might have. Maybe your children are causing you problems. Maybe they've walked away from the Lord. Jeremiah's life tells us to not run away or give away to, to despair or hopelessness, but to simply be faithful to what you can do, to be faithful where you are planted and fulfill the calling that God has put on your life. Your life has meaning and purpose because God says it does. And God will be with you to deliver you in the, in the time of his choosing, even though we may not see results in our lifetime. 
And so we talked to Jesus. We asked Jesus, well, what do you need? What do you need from Jesus to fulfill your calling today? Now let's talk about Jeremiah's message. It was a hard message. <laughs> and that's why he was opposed and treated so harshly. And that's the, this is the theme I want to hit on now uh, for a little bit. In chapter 1, God gives Jeremiah two signs. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. There's a, a word play here between almond and watching. Very similar. And what, what God is telling Jeremiah is that everything you say, my word will come to pass. I'm serious about whatever I say. And then it there's a, a second sign. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon the inhabitants of the land. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Babylon will be the boiling pot that, that, that pours down from the north like, a, like volcanic lava to judge Judah for all its idolatrous ways. And this was the message that God gave Jeremiah to give to the people. And so for 40 years, Jeremiah kept speaking this word, trying to call Judah back to, re to uh, renewal, trying to get them to repent. Something came to me as I reread re -read Jeremiah the last few weeks that I didn't, I, I don't think I, I realized so fully when I was preaching this over 20 years ago. And it's this God, Jeremiah tells us something very, very important about God God hates idolatry. He absolutely despises, hates to see his people begin to bow down to idols. God is a jealous God and wants our full undivided worship. He does not want to play second fiddle. He does not want us to think that we can have our cake and eat it too. That he doesn't care about what we worship. That we can go to church, go to Bible studies, but at the same time give priority and value to other things above him. He wants us to be holy as he is holy. He wants a people for him, his namesake. And it's for this reason that he has chosen us and set us apart. He wants us to live now like we will live for all eternity. There will be no idols in the new heavens and the new earth. So why do we fool around with them in our life now? <laughs> now, I didn't plan on talking about idolatry to make you feel bad or guilty. It's just Jeremiah. It's just at the heart of Jeremiah's word to the people. But it's a word that we need to hear because we need to know how to turn from idols and why they're a waste of time. God, 
is he, he doesn't want to come across as demanding, ruthless, and harsh. God wants us to not waste our life and energies on which is not life, on those things that have no life, so that we can give, he can give us life abundantly. And this is clear in chapter 2. And I would just want to read some of this text leading up to uh, a very, very powerful, one of the most powerful metaphors in Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, this is chapter 2 now, I will remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Oh, Judah, Judah, we were in the wilderness. We had a, we were newly married and we loved each other and there was such incredible devotion to each other. What went wrong? What went wrong? What wrong did your fathers find in me and they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Now, God's getting at the heart of the problem of idols. They're worthless. They have no redeeming value. And he says, if you, we pursue worthless things, we become worthless. We become like them. Our lives are diminished. The opposite of the calling that God puts in our life. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land. See, he's saying, I gave you everything. I gave you a home. I gave you a place where I dwell. Everything I gave to you, you had it all. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Everybody was in this together. The priests, the judges, the rulers, the shepherds, the prophets. Has a nation changed its gods? And even though they are no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Yeah. This has never happened to any other nation. They haven't, no other nation's changed out their gods, swiped for a different god, um, traded for a different god, but the people of Judah have traded the glory of God for something that's nothing. It's like trading gold for a handful of dust. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And there you have it, a metaphor for idolatry, broken cisterns. I have a guy I play golf with, and he has dug three huge cisterns in his backyard. Of course, nowadays, you get a, you get a shell, a polyurethane shell, and fill it in. Well, in Jeremiah's time, you'd, you'd dig holes in the ground, and they couldn't hold water. They would, <laughs> you'd go to get a drink, and whoa, there'd be no water there. That's the picture of idolatry, of digging a cistern to hold what we think will satisfy our thirst, but in the end proves to not be able to deliver because there's always a leak. 
We dig cisterns, we try to fill them, but they leak and they leave us thirsty. So think about your idols for a minute. We don't have Baal figurines like they did in Judah in Jeremiah's day. But that doesn't mean we don't have idols. We dig cisterns for wealth and power and success and status and reputation. Um, those are common idols that we think about um, and that we're tempted to uh, pursue. But you know, anything can be an idol, really. If we put it above God, politics can be an idol. And I think we're seeing that now in our days. A relationship, getting our own way can be an idol. Having to be right can be an idol. Even resentment can be an idol if we hold it. And it becomes the most important thing in our life. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. And John Calvin refers to the human heart as an idol factory. The poet Malcolm Geith describes idolatry in our modern world in this way, and I love this. The worldly wind us in a web of lies. We have been flattered into servitude, snared with devices that the rich devise. They purchase us with their fake plentitude. They keep us clicking on false images. The 1% controls the multitude with slick distractions, online purchases, whose icons all prove idols in the end. Isn't that a picture? Sitting in a computer, just clicking away, just looking at all those idols. Well, the idol, idols don't fill and satisfy our the cistern of our soul. Only God can fill us with living water. And that's what Jesus said to the woman at the well. If you would have known the gift of God and who it is that's trying to be, who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. James K. A. Smith wrote a very good book on this subject entitled, You Are What You Love. And that's what God is saying through Jeremiah about idols. You become what you worship. You become what you desire. If you love worthless things, you become worthless. If you love empty things, you become empty. We experience a besetting anxiety and restlessness when we try to love substitutes. Idolatry separates us from God and the fountain of living water. Now God isn't motivated primarily to condemn and judge. His primary motivation is to get our attention so that we repent and turn to God to reorient our gaze on Christ. We find rest when our loves are rightly ordered. Now, I just learned this a few weeks ago in a talk by Malcolm Guide, actually, that if you were in a traditional liturgical church uh, and candidates for baptism or confirmation um, you know, the time came for them to be baptized or confirmed. 
the, uh, the priest, um, they'd all be facing one direction. They'd be facing west. And the priest would ask, do you turn to Christ? And everyone would turn 180 degrees and face east and say, I turn to Christ. A picture of, 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 of orienting our lives around Christ. Now, for me, I got a long list of false loves. I know them well. And they're like a slot machine in Vegas. They never paid off. They've never paid off. They never will pay off. And I know for me, this turning again and again needs to be a regular practice because I get sideways. My eyes get diverted on false gods, things that I think are going to satisfy me and fulfill me. And if you grow up in a liturgical church, you, you basically, through the morning prayer, turn to God, turn to Christ every day because you pray. We have followed too much the devices and the desires of our own hearts. I love that, the devices and desires of our own hearts. We've offended against the holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. But thou, O Lord, have mercy on us. You know, this is the reason we gather for church. We don't come to church to check it off the list. We don't come to church to criticize the sermon. We don't come to church to not like the music. We don't come to church because we think God's going to be happy with us if we do. We come to church to turn to Christ, to reorient our life on Christ. The word orient is actually east. And uh, we, we, east, when we face east, that was the tradition, face east. That's a reorientation of your life. And the amazing thing is that God is a merciful God. He is so merciful. And he says over and over in Jeremiah, um, if you return to me, I will return to you. And even though Jer uh, Judah goes into exile, Jeremiah talks about a day of wonderful renewal. And he gives these pictures, young women rejoice in the dance, young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. And then he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king in justice and righteousness. Here, Jeremiah is calling the people of Judah to turn to Christ even before they know who Christ is. And then in this wonderful text, in chapter 31, Jeremiah proclaims, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah and this is the covenant, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I'll be their God. They shall be my people for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See, God wants our hearts. Simple as that. That's what he made us for. He made us 
for him. God is the fountain of living water. Christ has done it all for us. The Spirit changes our hearts so we can realign our hearts with the devices and desires of God. We live now in the spirit of the age, and so God can do the work inside of us. We simply turn to Christ. Do you want to say that with me this morning? I'm going to ask you that question. I'm going to ask you the question that uh, someone who would get baptized, I'm going to ask you, do you turn to Christ? And if you want, you don't have to. Say, I turn to Christ. You want to do that? Do you turn to Christ? Yeah. How is God speaking to you today? Perhaps you're reminded of how special you are. Perhaps there's an encouragement in the struggles that you face in your life, trying to live out your calling and being faithful. Maybe there's a conviction and a desire to reorient, recalibrate, reorder your life towards Christ. And so without judgment, we can simply turn to Christ. Or maybe God is giving you hope for strength and restoration right now and, and placing your hope on what God is going to bring eventually, even if we can't see it now. Here are these words also from Jeremiah's pen. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, and his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, for the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. Amen.